You know, it's a somber passage that Joe read to us, and this is where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark. And if you haven't already, I'd invite you to open your Bibles there, Mark chapter 15. That's the text that we're going to center on. We've been slowing down as we're getting to these final 24 hours of Jesus' life. And in fact, this scene opens on the, the morning of his death. Right? This is Friday morning. This is Good Friday. And the, the, the rooster has crowed Right in our last scene. Peter crumpled over in an emotional heap when he remembered that Jesus predicted that he would deny him. And that t- took place. And now we're in early morning. So here's how I want to set up this text. Um, Lloyd and I, are actually we decided to tag team this passage. So Lloyd's going to be here next week. He's going to teach on the same passage. He's actually going to go a little further into verse 20. But he's going to come at it from a different angle. And what I want to do this morning is... I want to focus on these two new characters that have been introduced, and Barabbas and Pilate. And we're going to talk about them because I think there's something important that we're going to learn by contrasting these two men with Jesus, who's obviously standing in the middle of this scene. Now, here's how I'm going to set this up. Jody and I are finding in our parenting, we're always correcting our girls in some way, shape, or form. So they're, they're in that age, right? We've got a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a 12-year-old. And sometimes they get along brilliantly, and other times, let's just say, they don't get along brilliantly at all. And so we're constantly, you know, don't hit your sister and share and, you know, all these kinds of things. So what I've noticed is a common theme in our instruction or our encouragement or, or you know, sometimes uh, admonition to them. Common theme in two areas. Number one, authority right? Who's in charge? You have someone over you that's in authority and it's not you, right? That's a common theme, authority. The second common theme is power. Power. Now, here's what I mean by power. I chose that word intentionally. I don't always use that that word with my daughters, but what we do talk about is you have the ability to choose. You have the power to respond a certain way. So when she takes your toy or you don't get the privilege that she gets, you have the power to decide how you're going to respond to that in your attitude, your response, and your behavior. So obey mommy and daddy's authority, number one, and make wise decisions and choices with the, with the decision power that you have. Authority and power. And so this plays out all kinds of ways in, in parenting. What it struck me this week is those are the two themes that I still struggle with as an adult. Right? And these are the two uh, themes that as I interact with you as a pastor and I hear stories in my office and struggles with sin and broken relationships, it comes down to authority and power. Among other things, that's not the only two things, but those are two of the big ones. In other words, to understand that we are all under authority. We are all under God's authority and then underneath that authority, he has established other authority structures right? We have bosses. We, we have uh, police officers. We have government. And not only are we under authority, under God that he has instituted, but we also have freedom of choice. We have the ability to choose. We have power. And as you grow into an adult, your power increases. And what you realize is you can influence other people for ill or for good. And so the question comes down to, how will I use my power that I have as as, as sort of an autonomous human being? Am I going to use my power to leverage and get the things that I want out of life, like my daughters do? (laughs) Or am I going to use my power to serve other people? Will I use my choices for me or use my choices to love other people? That's what the scripture keeps calling us to. Live under the authority of God and use your power to love other people. Now, why do I set it up this way? I think 
the interesting lesson that is to be learned from Pilate and Barabbas in contrast with Jesus hinges on these two areas. Authority and power. Power and authority. And so I want to introduce you to these two men as we walk through the text and we're going to take the back half of the sermon to compare and contrast what these men's relationships are with power, with authority, and then ultimately what that means in terms of their destiny, their legacy. All contrasting that with Jesus. So here we go. We're in the final day of Jesus' life. As I mentioned, I'm going to jump in, just read verse 1, and then talk about the first character we meet who is Pontius Pilate. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. To Pilate. Now, let's talk about Pilate. Mark doesn't say much about Pilate by way of background. He's assuming that his readers already know about Pilate and the original readers would have. They would have been like, oh yeah, I remember that guy. (laughs) They probably wouldn't have thought too highly of him, I'm guessing, right? Pilate has kind of been a notorious figure. Um, Even in our creeds to this day, in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Pontius Pilate's name is mentioned. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate, right? We all recognize the name, but we don't know that much about the man. Let me tell you just a little bit about Pontius Pilate by way of background. Pontius Pilate was the prefect or governor of, at this time, the Roman province of Judea. Now, a little bit of historical background will help here. Herod the Great, who had ruled at the time of the birth of Christ, Okay, Herod the Great had all the territory under Jewish rule. You know, Herod wasn't a real true Jew, but he kind of identified as a Jew and kind of claimed that he was the Jewish king. He was a powerful man, great builder, great architect, you know, ruled with an iron fist. Remember, he was the one that ordered all the babies in Bethlehem killed because he had heard that there was this future king, this usurper, Messiah that was coming up. So that was Herod the Great. He died around 4 B.C., Herod the Great died around 4 BC, and his kingdom, vast kingdom, was split up into his three sons. Herod Archelaus got the largest section. He got kind of half of the kingdom, right? He got Samaria and Judea, both combined. Herod Antipas got the Galilee region, which is up north where Jesus did a lot of his ministry, right around the Sea of Galilee. And then Herod Philip got a region kind of to the east of the Galilee region, which is now modern-day Syria. So you had three sons, and this kingdom was divided up. Well, Archelaus, who had the largest part, you know, Judea, Samaria, including Jerusalem, he proved to be a terrible ruler. And so the Roman emperor at that time, who was Augustus, took away his power. In fact, he deposed Archelaus. This was about 6 A.D., so about 10 years after Herod the Great's death. And so that region that Herod Archelaus had ruled was now a Roman province. And so what did the Caesar do? He appointed a Roman governor over that region. Now, the first Roman governor was not Pontius Pilate. In fact, there were four before Pontius Pilate took power on the scene as the governor of the Roman province of Judea. And Pontius Pilate came into power about 26 AD. We don't know about his background before he arrived, but he's famous for the scene that Joe just read. This is why, and the only reason why, we know who Pontius Pilate was. 
Now, there's a lot of hints in the Gospels and some other extra-biblical accounts that Pontius Pilate had a kind of a combative relationship with the religious leaders at the time. And that shows up in this story, right? They did not get along. So the religious leaders, they don't want to have to ask Pilate for any favor because he is no friend of theirs. But they have to bring Jesus to him if they want Jesus killed because only Rome could execute. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. And now he's standing before Pilate and they're hoping that Pilate will condemn him to death. That's what they want to happen here. Now, with that context, let's see what happens. Back in the text in verse 2. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now, the key question that Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? That's almost exactly the same question that the chief priest had asked Jesus in the first trial the night before. Remember, the chief priest Caiaphas said, Are you the Messiah? But notice it's worded differently. The charge that the priests brought against Jesus before Pilate would never have flown if they said, well, he's a blasphemer. He claims to be God. Pilate doesn't really care about that. But what would get Pilate's attention is for them to say he claims to be a king. Pilate was responsible for keeping order and peace. And so if there was a rival king that was going to rise up and challenge the authority of Rome, Pilate had a responsibility to squash that. So that's where Pilate is asking him. He says, are you a king? Now Jesus' answer in verse 2 is, is rather interesting. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He affirms it, but in a subtle, back-ended way. Let's look at his words. It is as you say. It is as you say. So in other words, he's saying, yeah, I am, but I wouldn't use those exact words. Those are the words you have chosen. Jesus knows in Pilate's mind the kind of king and ruler that Pilate is concerned about is not the kind of king that Jesus is. At least not at this point. So what Jesus also says, we know from John, uh, the different account that actually describes more exact words, John tells us that Jesus' answer is, yeah, it's as you say, but my kingdom is not of this world. You see, Jesus is making sure that Pilate knows, I am a king, but not the kind of king that's trying to overthrow Rome at this point in time. That's not my objective. So Pilate has his question answered in a sense. Then the priests start throwing all these accusations at Jesus. Jesus says nothing. And did you catch that little detail that Pilate is amazed? Why would Pilate be amazed? Jesus isn't defending himself. Jesus isn't using his power to get out of the charges. So all these things, oh, he said this, he said that, he claimed this, he's threatening Rome. None of it's true. Jesus just stands there. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get accused of something that I did not do, I am always going to defend myself. It's just in me. It's like, nope. Nope, that's not true. That's not true. That's not how it went down. 
I'm going to use my power, my influence. You know, for me, like I'm not a super strong guy, but I use words pretty well. So I'm going to use my words and I'm going to defend myself. Jesus is not using his words. He's not using miracles. He's silent. He's not using his power. And so Pilate is amazed. Who does that? Who does that, Pilate's thinking? Now, we, we get into what happens next in our text in verse 6. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. Then The man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Okay, here's what's going on here. Pilate's in a predicament with Jesus because Pilate knows Jesus is not actually a threat. Jesus is not actually trying to stir up some kind of military rebellion and fight against Rome. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, and that's going to be clear in the verses I'll read in a few minutes. And yet for him to not do what the priests want is going to cause further animosity with them and stir them up even more. So he's got a dilemma here. So he's going to do exactly what any good politician does. Let's poll the audience. Let's take a vote. And so he pulls out this guy, Barabbas. He goes, you got Barabbas, you got Jesus. Which one do you want? Now, let's talk about Barabbas. All right, we talked about Pilate in the first part. Now let's talk about Barabbas. We don't know anything about this man other than what I just read and in the parallel accounts in the other Gospels. But there's some important clues in verse 7 about this man, Barabbas. Take a look at it one more time. He'd been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. What's what's an insurrectionist? A rebel. An insurrectionist is a revolutionary. An insurrectionist is someone who would stir people up and say, we're going to get what we need through power. We're going to overcome the oppression of the Romans by picking up our sword. And we don't know anything else about this particular insurrection other than there was a murder, maybe more than one, that these men had committed Barabbas was more than likely their leader. He may have been kind of a a folk hero, or maybe he was a notorious, almost like a rebel pirate. You know, we we don't necessarily know all this from the context. But he was a man that would say, I am going to challenge Rome power to power. And guess what? He lost. As anybody did that challenged Rome that way. So, Pilate pulls this man Barabbas out. He puts him right next to Jesus. Which one do you want? You want the rebel or you want the king? Right? Your so-called king. And I think Pilate is fully expecting them to say, give us Jesus, right? We don't need that rabble rouser, you know, um, Barabbas back on the streets, killing more people. He's going to bring Rome's crushing blow down us if we follow that path. That is not the way that it goes. Look at verses 12 through 14. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Mark's going out of his way to make sure the reader knows that Pilate is surprised by this. 
And Mark's going out of his way to make sure the reader knows that Pilate considers Jesus innocent. Pilate's job, you know, besides keeping rebellions from happening, his job is to administer Roman justice. All right? So Pilate, as a judge, has a responsibility from Rome that if someone's deserving of death because they're a true threat, he needs to put them down. But if someone is not deserving of death, he must do the just thing and allow them to live. Pilate is caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place. On the one hand, his emperor would command him to administer justice where justice needs to be done. That would entail releasing someone who is falsely accused. On the other hand, the crowd, the religious leaders, the pressure on him to kill an innocent man. Let's see what Pilate chooses to do, the tragic but very predictable ending to this so-called trial. Verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged or beaten, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, I want us to interact with these two new characters, Pilate, Barabbas, contrast them with Jesus along the lines of the two themes that I introduced at the top of the message, authority and power. And I've got some slides I want to put on the screen. I think this will start to make sense as we walk through it. Let's talk about their relationship to authority. That's where I want to start. Pilate was under Caesar's authority, but his true authority was the crowd. Barabbas was under Roman law, but his true authority was his own law. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. Let's start with Pilate. Pilate was under the authority of Caesar. But what did he care about more than Caesar's authority? The voices of the crowd. That was Pilate's true authority. So what was revealed in his heart at that moment of choice is, I care more about the cries of these people demanding me to appease them than I do about what I'm called to do in my duty, which is to administer justice. It should have been Barabbas that was killed as the rebel and Jesus that was set free. Barabbas, on the other hand, in his rebellion, he'd said, I'm going to challenge the authority of Roman law because I believe my own law, my own beliefs, my own ends justify the, or the ends justify the means approach is going to get us freedom. Now, both of these men, if you think about it this way, were under the imperfect but God-ordained authority of government. By the way, that's how Bible... Uh, the scriptures describe human government as imperfect but God-ordained authority. They were under that authority, but they functioned outside of that authority. Pilate, in his unjust decision to kill Jesus, Barabbas, in his unlawful decision to rebel against Rome, Why did they function outside of the authority that had been placed over them? Because there was something more important and authoritative in their lives. What was more authoritative for Pilate? For Pilate, it was political expediency. Right? Verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd. In other words, it was more important for Pilate to satisfy the crowd than to administer justice. That was his authority, right? 
What was it for Barabbas? For Barabbas, it was political revolution. That was his higher authority. He thought the ends justified the means, so he took a life in order to make a statement. Reminds me of what Jesus had said to Peter after Peter did the same thing. He cut off that guard's ear in the garden. Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, that's not God's way for this moment in time. You are not to challenge authority that way, Peter. And this is exactly what Barabbas had done. Now, you've got these two approaches to authority. I'm going to layer one more on the bottom of this slide so that you see the contrast with Jesus. Here it is. Jesus was under no one's authority, but willingly submitted himself to his father. Okay? These two men, under authority, they rebelled against authority because they had a deeper authority. Jesus, under no authority, willingly submits himself to the Father. Do you remember him wrestling in the garden? Can you take this cup away, this cup of wrath? But not as I will, but as you will, Father. He's living out that choice. He's exercising his power now to live out his submission to his true authority. All right, that's relationship to authority. Let's briefly talk about relationship to power. Let's go first slide on relationship to power. Pilate was afraid of losing his power. Barabbas was willing to kill for power. So what do they both have in common? For them, power was something that you possess and that you wield as a weapon. So Pilate was in the powerful seat of the Roman government. He didn't want to lose any of that power, so he pacified the crowd because he was afraid of losing power. Barabbas said, listen, they've got the power. We want the power. Let's go get it. Let's grab on the power. You see, both of them had this sort of relationship. Pilate hoarded it and leveraged it. Barabbas tried to forcibly take it. That was their relationship to power. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Jesus willingly laid aside his power. Isn't this remarkable? There's one man on this screen that had true power, that had real power, and it was the one that willingly laid it aside. It's the one that decided not to call down 10,000 angels to come and rescue him. Do you see how Jesus is exercising power? It's very fascinating. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is in the ultimate power seat here and he willingly submits himself to a different authority. He does not wield his power to defend himself. He willingly lays down his power. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, in fulfillment of God's will, yes, but there's also another reason. So I want to show you uh, one more comparison and contrast with these men because not only do they have a relationship to authority, not only do they have a relationship to power, but you mix those things together and it creates a relationship with the other people. So here it is, relationship to other people. Pilate wanted to appease them. Barabbas wanted to incite them. In other words, stir them up to a rebellion. What they have in common is they both wanted to use people as a means to an end. 
Okay? For, for Pilate, it was political ends. For Barabbas, it was military ends. But they were not there to serve the people. They were there to use the people. Contrast that with Jesus. Jesus wanted to serve them. You might think of it this way. Jesus wanted something far more for the people than from the people. He's the servant king. He's the one who came not, not, not to, to rise a, a, an army and create an rebellion. He came to serve, to be a servant of many and to lay down his life. And so at the end of this passage, we see Jesus being brutally flogged and on his way to the cross as a substitute. Don't miss that. It should have been Barabbas. Instead, it's Jesus. And so you have a literal substitution that points to the grander theological substitution. You following me? This is, this is an incredible contrast. And so what I want to do is get to the so what, right? What does this mean for us? What do we do with all this? Here's what I would say. The way that you think about authority and power have enormous consequences. Now, let me unpack this for you a little bit. I just want to try to make this as practical as I possibly can. Most of our relationships, when they have friction, it's due to, to, to someone exercising power in a way that's more selfish than selfless, or it's someone that's not living under the authority that God would call them to as a child of God. Now, I want to get even a little bit more practical in this. Your relationships in your marriage, your relationships in your parenting, your relationships in your families and extended families, your job, your career, how you interact with your boss, how you interact with coworkers, how you interact with those under you, your relationships with your neighbors, your relationships in this church body here, all of your relationships essentially culminate and decisions that you're choosing to make with your power and whether or not you will live under the authority of God or whether or not you will step out from that authority to exercise authority in some other way. We are called to follow the servant king. That should impact all kinds of things in our lives. Maybe most notably, the way we think about authority and the way we think about power. In other words, the, the tagline of this series that we've been in for nine months, following the servant king, little, little bitty writing right here, how Jesus' life redefines our own. The life of Jesus should actually mold and shape how we engage in relationships, how we engage in our parenting, and most notably, I think from this text, how we think about power and how we think about authority. So let me give you a summary statement, all right? If you want to imitate someone... Don't imitate Pilate. Don't imitate Barabbas. Imitate Jesus. And so here's the summary statement for how Jesus interacted with authority and power. We'll put this on the screen. Jesus fully and freely submitted to his Father's authority and exercised his power in sacrificial service to other people. Let's break that down, part one, part two. Part one, fully and freely submitted to his father's authority. Guys, he didn't have to. 
the Son willingly chose, as we read in Philippians 2, to humble himself. And as we were reminded of in the Garden of Gethsemane, to say, not my will, but your will. He fully and freely submitted himself to the Father's authority, just as we are too. Back into this, exercised his power in sacrificial service to other people. Listen, this is so fascinating as I've thought about this. In this text, the way that Jesus is exercising his power is by laying it down. But in other texts, the way he exercised his power was by pulling it out. Right? All the miracles that he did, he's using his power. When he overturned the money changer's temple and caused that big commotion in the temple, he's utilizing his power. There are times that he's utilizing his power and times that he's withholding his power. Why? What do they both have in common? The motivation of service and love to other people under the authority of his father. Jesus never once exercised his power for selfish gain. He never did a magic trick to impress people and attract people to follow him. He never was, was hungry when he was hungry out in that wilderness and Satan said, just say the word and those stones will become bread. He didn't do it. He wasn't going to feed himself with his own power. In this very moment in time from our our text, he could have used his power to say, I really am the king. I really am the Messiah. Watch this little trick. Boom. Or he could have just used his words to defend himself, used the power of his teaching to say, have I not only given you words of life or reminded them of his miracles? Has not every miracle I've done been about serving you and healing your diseases and feeding you bread? And providing for you and speaking words of life to you from God our Father. Isn't that how you've seen me live my life, crowd? See, he could have used his power to change the narrative. He didn't. He withheld it. Why did he withhold it? Because he was there to serve them. And the best and only way he could serve them was by going to the cross. By like laying down his life. You see, Jesus always exercised his power, not for himself, but in sacrificial service to other people. That's what you and I are called to do. We're called to live under the authority of God and we're called to exercise our decisions, our choices, our influence to serve other people, not ourselves. Now, I hope you got that. We're almost done, but I can't leave you there. And I can't leave you there because here's something that's true. You can't do it not the way Jesus did it. And you won't do it not the way Jesus did it because you still have the sinful nature. You still wrestle against the flesh as Paul talked about it. So what do you do? You're being called to live perfectly under the authority of God, i.e. love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're being called to serve other people, use your power not for you but for them, i.e. Love other people as yourself. And you haven't been doing it. And you won't just flip a switch and start doing it perfectly anyway, although there's certainly progress to be made. You won't start doing it perfectly by trying to grab at it, by committing your will to it. 
So what you need to do as a starting point is see how far away from God's ideal you actually are. In other words, I think you need to see a little bit of yourself in either Pilate or Barabbas. You need to sort of say, I think if I'm honest, I am a little bit more like, like, like Pilate who would, who would follow the, the crowd instead of making a decision that I know is right. Or I am a little bit more like Barabbas, that I would rather defend myself and pick up my sword with my voice or with my argument or, or whatever it is, and I would rather exact my will violently. You see, we are all like this. This is the sinful flesh being manifested in these men and contrasted with the perfect Savior. Now, what do we do? You can make a little progress. You can, and I hope you do, and I hope you will. But here's what I think real progress would look like. You ready for this? I think you must understand that Jesus was far more than a great moral teacher and a great moral example. I think you must understand that Jesus was the embodiment of this kind of love. This full love for the Father and this full love for other people, right? He was the servant king. I think you have to understand he wasn't just an example for you to follow, but he's the embodiment of it. And so when you put your faith in Christ, you see, you become in Christ. You become in Christ. So let me explain it this way. On your own, there's no way, shape, or form that you can perfectly love God and perfectly love other people. It won't happen. Jesus did those things as a substitute for you. So we tend to only think about the death of Jesus, typically, that he died for our sins. And that is 100% right and true, and we should meditate on that. We don't think enough about the life of Jesus, that he lived in our place, not just died in our place. In other words, he didn't just die the death that you deserved, although that's true. He lived the life that you were called to live. You were supposed to live as a human being, and you failed. You couldn't do it. He lived it for you. So when you put your faith in Christ, you don't just get a blank slate of forgiveness, so now start trying harder to live the life you were always meant to live. No, 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 no. You come in a new way. It's the way of being in Christ. It's the way of receiving the perfection of his life and saying, listen, this is now on me and as new clothes that I put on and it allows me to walk differently because my identity is changed. And this is what it means to be in Christ. And I, we can't possibly unpack this as much as we would like to with, this, with the time we have left. But I'll, I'll simply kind of start closing this way. Start closing. I put that little start in there, okay? A, a funny thing happens when you're in Christ, okay? And all of you who've put your faith in Jesus are in Christ. A funny thing happens when you're in Christ. The way that you begin to change is not an external thing that you can achieve or grab onto or goals that you set and, you know, check the box, now I'm growing. No, no, that's not how change works in Christ, change happens as the Spirit of God that is in you begins to conform you into the image of the Son. 
Change happens as the Spirit begins to grow you from the inside out to look a little bit more like the man that we were looking at on this screen. Because in and of your own right, you are no way going to respond to authority and power and love other people the way that you're called to do. You just won't do it. Now, we take steps through our disciplines to align ourselves with the work of the Spirit. And those are important. But it's not your work. It's the Spirit's work in you. The change, if you think about it this way, happens inside out, not outside in. And so, closing thought. Jody and I are trying really hard to encourage, educate, and admonish our kids as it relates to the authority that they have over them and the power of their own choices. And yet, we know deep down that the only real hope of change is going to be Christ in them. And so we coach them and teach them and discipline them during the day. And when they go to bed, we get on on our knees and we pray that God would transform them. You see, there is grace-driven human effort here and there is dependence upon the work of Christ here. This is what is true for us as a body. Our only hope is the work of Christ in us. But we're going to align our minds to this book, right? That's why we preach expositionally. And we're going to call you to serve, right? That's why we have this serve one, worship one model. Yet hope for change for you, for me, is Christ in you. And you've got to understand that in order for you to grow. And so I want to pray for you. As I pray, as Jody and I pray for our kids, that Christ would transform your heart. And pray for me that he would transform my heart. And let's pray together as a family of faith. Our Father, for these men and women in this room, I ask that you would do a deep work in them. I ask that you would do a deep work in us that we don't even deserve. I pray, God, that you would just start, or or I, I should say that you would continue transforming us from the inside out in such a way that there would be nothing even that we could ever look to and say, look, look, look at what they did to start growing. But God, I pray that that transformation would just be by your spirit birthing in us a greater and greater conformity to your son. And yet I also pray for the sake of these men and women whom I care about, I pray that they would be engaging that work themselves, that that they would not sit back passively and just wait for you to do all the work, but they would say, no, no, I want to cultivate it. I want to water it. I want to study. I want to grow. I want to serve. I want to do what I can do. But our hope is always in transformation coming from inside through your spirit. And Father, I I just also want to pray for them in these two areas of authority and power. And I just want to acknowledge it is hard for us to submit to your authority all the time. And I think the reason is is because we don't always trust that you have the best in mind for us. So would you increase our faith? And Father, it's also hard for us to use our power in ways that are not selfish. That's really hard because we're all thirsty and we're all hungry and we all want to feed ourselves. But God, would you keep us so centered on our new identity in Christ that we feel filled and then we're able to look outward 
and use our power in service to other people just as your son did. So this is my prayer for this body. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.